Well, if you haven't already, if you turn your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. And we're going to pick up uh, tonight where we left off last week in our study of this wonderful letter. And we're finding Paul doing what he's been doing, the three things that he's been doing uh, since we began. One, he is defending uh, the faith alone gospel that he originally had preached to them. Uh, He's also uh, fighting against the faith and work gospel that the the Judaizers were putting forth. And of course, we've said that it really wasn't a gospel at all. There's no good news about having uh, to work in any way, shape or uh, fashion for our salvation. And then the third thing that he was doing is he's encouraging them. He's expressing his love and care and concern for the Galatians themselves. And if you remember from last week, and if you weren't with us, uh, he was very theological. Uh, Last week he talked about uh, who we are, uh, who they were, who we are in Christ. He spoke of our union with him, uh, how our identities have changed because of that union, that prior to faith. Uh, that we were in bondage uh, to slave, or we were slaves in bondage. We were immature children who needed uh, discipline and were constantly under that burden of continual discipline. Uh, basically, immature children. But something had changed because of that union with Christ, because of our faith that God had given to us and given to them, and that they exercised and looked uh, in faith to Jesus. Their identity changed and they were now sons and daughters of the Lord's and co-heirs with Christ, who, by the way, is was not ashamed or is not ashamed to call them or to call us brothers and sisters. A pretty significant change. We said, of course, what was true of them is true of us, even though we don't always feel like it, don't always act like it. We are sons and daughters of the King. Waiting for an inheritance that's been sealed for us and being held by God for us. Tonight we're in verses 8 to 20. Uh, he remains theological, but Paul's going to get a really personal in the second half of this passage. Uh, and I think it's, and you will see uh, where we go, that I, I believe it's very important about how personal. He gets so much so that you'll see the title of the sermon in the outline uh, in the order of worship as well as the outline. You can draw a line through that. And um, as I continue to read and to prepare through this passage, there was this common theme of knowledge from eight to twenty. And so I've changed the title to the importance of knowing. And we're going to have two points to our outline. The first is knowing God. And the second is knowing one another. So before we begin, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Well, Father, we do um, come tonight to hear from you. That We ask that you might speak through what you have already spoken to us through your word. And we ask as we regularly do, if not always do, we ask that we might see Jesus. For as we've already prayed tonight, apart from Him we are nothing. We've gathered in response to what He has done for us. We gather because of what He has done for us. We're able to come into Your presence, not only because of what He has done, but because of what He continues to do as He intercedes for us. This is all about Him. 
And so we would like to see him. May our gaze be affixed upon him tonight as we walk through this passage. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear him. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, like he did in verses 23 to 25, uh, Paul begins this section in verses 8 to 11 by contrasting who they once were and who they are now. And his first statement in verse 8 is, he says, formerly when you did not know God. Now for us, uh, we automatically go to a intellectual type of knowing, you know, something of course that's in our minds. And, and really when we think of knowing, we're, it's relegated to our minds. But for Paul and his readers and those he's writing to, knowing was far more than just intellectual. It involved an experience or an encounter. So knowing God was more than giving intellectual assent to his uh, existence. It specifically referred to being saved or being in a relationship with him. Christ himself put it this way in his high priestly prayer. He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you and the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So. When Paul says, formerly, when you did not know God, he's saying before you were believers, before you were Christians, before you had uh, trusted in Christ by faith, before you were in this intimate fellowship with, with God, you were, he continues, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. In other words, they were idolaters. As I was telling the children, they were idolaters, they were worshiping they, they were involved in pagan worship and worship of Greek gods. They were involved in worshiping gods that were responsible for such things as the weather and growing crops and prosperity and fertility. And they would fashion uh, they would fashion gods as as uh, Daniel read from Isaiah. They would fashion gods out of wood and they would either either represent or symbolize those gods that they were worshiping or they would worship those exact figurines themselves. And they would celebrate feasts and festivals and that were an attempt to appease and honor these gods. And very, very matter of factly, Paul says, these aren't gods at all. The Greek gods didn't exist. They were created out of uh, out of nothing more than firewood. And yet. By worshiping him, they were enslaved by them. And that's because when you pull back all the layers, the reality was they were actually looking to themselves and their own effort because everything was about what they could do to appease those gods. So while they were, in effect, looking to those gods to do something, the only way those gods would do something is if they did something first. So it was works... And merit-based. They were enslaved by their own attempts to save themselves. Now in verse 9, he completes this contrast that he starts in verse 8. He says, but now that you have come to know God, the contrast is coming. He's going to describe how things should be different because they are now in Christ. He's going to explain, as he did back earlier in chapter 4, that there's a difference now that faith has come. 
So now that they are a part of the family of God, now that they're sons and daughters and heirs of God, and, and now that there's life after Christ, a specific change should have taken place. There are specific life-altering aspects to this difference. And what he says next is very important and significant. And it has a significant bearing on why that's the case. Notice what he says. Or rather, to be known by God. Now, he's not correcting himself. He didn't... The the word these days is, I misspoke. Right? He he did not misspeak. He's not saying... uh, Wait, I've thought about it. And now that I think about it, you don't know God. He knows you. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, you know God, but better yet, he knows you. You know God. As a matter of fact, you only know God because he knew you first. He's communicating two things by doing that. One, that God initiated the relationship with them And they had in turn responded. As we have been saying, we are here tonight because God has initiated a relationship with us in Christ. We have come tonight to respond to that. Uh, We heard Friday morning, Aaron was answering a question during the Bible study on Friday. He says, really, everything that we do is a response to something that God has initiated. And it's no different here. Had God not initiated, they never would have known him. They responded in faith to what God had initiated by grace. J.I. Packer puts it this way. He says, we do not make friends with God. God makes friends with us. Bringing us to know him by making his love known to us. Their knowing God was the consequence of God's taking knowledge of them. They knew him by faith because he first singled them out by grace. John agrees in 1 John chapter 4. Paul agrees here in Galatians and Romans 4 and 5 uh, in Ephesians 1. And we could go on and on. Uh, it's, it's common agreement that God initiates and we respond. And secondly, or two, he's communicating that God's knowledge of them was also not simply an in- intellectual knowledge or nod to their existence. Again, in the words of Mr. Mr. Packer, he says, it is a knowledge, God's knowledge is a knowledge that implies personal affection, redeeming action, covenant faithfulness, and providential watchfulness. It's really good. I'm going to read that again. It's a knowledge that implies personal affection, redeeming action, covenant faithfulness, and providential watchfulness. And then he wraps up by saying, and it, of course, implies Salvation. It implies salvation. And so God has acted. He's initiated. And how did they in turn know him? He knew them. He is. He is. Well, let me let me read it from Romans. Paul puts it this way in the book of Romans. He says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So 
Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So how do they come to know God? Well, God knew them and then allowed himself to be known. He revealed himself to them specifically through not only shedding light in, the, in their hearts and, and, and giving them faith in the spirit, regenerating them. But all of that took place through the preaching of Paul as he came with the true one and only gospel of the Lord Jesus. He came preaching. Paul's feet were beautiful. Because he came preaching the good news of the gospel. And they responded. Jesus put it this way in John chapter 10. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own. My own know me. There's the language. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. And no one will ever snatch them out of my hand. The assurance of that knowledge Paul's been arguing this since verse 9 of chapter 1. They knew him. They had been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and for no other reason. So with that in mind, then we come to the end of that statement, the end of the question where he says this. But now that you have come to know God, better yet, or more importantly, because God knows you, or you are known by God, how can you turn back again? How in the, I mean, this is how, how in the world can you turn back again if that's true? Because it is true, right? God's loved them. He's committed himself to them. He's cared for them. And all of that was theirs by faith. It was all theirs. It had nothing to do with anything that they've, could do or have ever done or or could ever do. So why would they go back? They're in intimate fellowship with the Lord. Why would they go back to a time when they weren't doing things that weren't going to bring it about? And it's important to clarify too, he wasn't talking about them reverting back to their idols in in their Greek God worship. He wasn't referring to that specific kind of idolatry. So he was talking about them reverting back, but he did it in the context of what he's been fighting against, which is them following the teaching of the Judaizers. So they weren't they were doing one thing. He says, don't don't revert back to another. What was what was he doing? Well, he's equating the two. Very clearly, he's saying that to to follow the Judaizers teaching of a. Faith plus works gospel is nothing more than idolatry. Because it's nothing more than trusting in yourself for your salvation. Just as idolatry, just as in the Greek worship, the pagan worship, ultimately peeling back the layers. It's nothing more than man attempting to appease the gods. So it's all based on their effort. Well, that's all the Judaizers were saying as well. Follow the law. Get circumcised. Keep the calendar year. He says they're equated because they're both about perpetuating weak and worthless, empty and bankrupt ideas from the world. Luther put it this way. Does Paul take it to be all one thing? To fall from the promise to the law, from faith to works and 
to do service unto gods which by nature are no gods? I answer, whosoever has fallen from the article of justification is ignorant of God and an idolater. The reason is because God will or can be known no otherwise than by Christ. There is no mean between man's working and the knowledge of Christ. If this knowledge be darkened or defaced, it is all one whether thou be a monk, a Turk, or a Jew. Understand where, when, when Luther was writing, right? But the, but the basic idea is seeking salvation in any other way through faith in Christ is idolatry. And I, as I've mentioned, and I would submit it's also works-based or merit-based salvation. It's a merit-based system. So when Paul says, because you are known by God and since you have come to know him, having come to know him, having come to faith, having believed in Christ, having your sins forgiven and having already forsaken idolatry, why in the world would you go back and enslave yourself to that exact system? It makes no sense. By buying into that message, by believing you need to be circumcised and and keep all of those festivals and rituals and feasts. He said, you were already doing that. They were different festivals and feasts. But why would you leave those festivals and feasts and go to these festivals and feasts? He says, I'm perplexed. Right. Verse 20. I'm I'm perplexed. And in verse 11, we see the level of his frustration. The level of his frustration is, I am afraid I have labored over you in vain. They're falling back into what they've been saved from. I came with the gospel. The words in there, the the language is such that I have worked myself. I have labored. I have worked myself to the point of exhaustion for your sake. And you're going back to where you've been. Everything that I've done, everything that I've said has been a waste of time. If you go back, it's a waste. Brothers and sisters, I want to pause and I want to ask some questions very simply Tonight, do you find yourself trusting in something or someone else other than Christ for your salvation? Whether it be your justification or your sanctification. Are you looking to someone or something else? Have you turned back to the past, to some former way of thinking or some former way of living that reflects your trust in other things or more specifically trust in yourself? Are you relying upon yourself? Do you find yourself not worshiping? I'm not worried about you worshiping any carved images or burning incense or some altar in your living room. My, my, my concern is, and the question is, are, are, are you looking to others or to yourself for approval and acceptance? Are, are there things you need to do? Are there things you need to possess? Are there results that need to take place for you to feel good about who you are and that you're in right standing with God and other people? Are there rungs that you believe you need to climb? Are there positions you feel you need to fill? Are there standards you need to meet? 
Is there a level of knowledge of and love for God that you believe that you believe you need to reach? And are you are you enslaving yourself to that treadmill of always trying to do what you can do and always failing? So you always keep trying to do what you can do and you're always failing and are you tired and worn out? And weary. That's what treadmills do, right, John? That's what treadmills do. If if you answer any of those questions in the affirmative or with a yes, stop right where you are, take your eyes off of whatever it is, and look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. And don't dwell upon how much, how much you know Him or love Him. Focus on, dwell upon, consider how much God knows you and loves you. Because the answer to idolatry and the answer to that workspace and merit-based system is how much He knows you and loves you. Consider and dwell upon the inexhaustible, immeasurable knowledge of God that He has of you. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows the good, the bad, and the ugly. He knows the positive and the negative. He knows your successes and your failures. He knows the best parts of you. He knows the worst parts of you. And everything in between. He knows the questions you have. He knows the doubts that you wrestle with. He knows what others, what others don't, and in some cases never will. And He's not surprised by you or disillusioned by you or of you. And despite that indefinite, infinite knowledge, He loves you. He loves you with that same immeasurable love. He loves you with that same, that exhaustible love that He has expressed in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's Jesus who was born for us, lived for us, died for us, was buried for us, rose again for us, ascended into heaven for us. That we might be not only forgiven of our sins and declared not guilty, but that His life of righteousness might be imputed to us. So that we would be seen as completely holy, that, that we might be adopted. Sons and daughters. Co-heirs with Christ. Who is not ashamed to call us brother and sister. That's how much you are loved. The answer to idolatry, the answer to the treadmill, is not for you to turn in and continue to ask, how much do I know God? How much do I love Him? It's to turn outward, look to Christ. How much does God know me? How much does He love me? Okay, well, I don't know about you, but you read verse 11, you you read verse 11 and I can see Paul leaning back. I mean, he's right. He's he's at this place of I've I've wasted my time and I can see him leaning back in his chair and putting his hands behind his head and just wondering if the letter's even worth it. 
I mean, we see at the end of the chapter, he says, you see what big letters I'm writing. And we're going to see in a minute why this is. This is a struggle. Even this writing is a struggle for him. It's a labor of love. And he's just looking. He's, he's going, should I even finish this? I got three more chapters to go. And what's he do? He gathers himself. He takes a deep breath. He picks up the pen. And he begins to write. He's not done. He can't do it. And his tone changes again. Right? His tone changes again. In, in verse 12, he calls them brothers. And he's done this before, kind of scattered in the midst of this, right? Back and forth. But he calls them brothers again. It's a word or tone of affection. Uh, so he's not making this simple, re- but he's not making this simple request. And he's not got this sharp tone that he's had before. He comes to them begging. Right? It's just sincere, deep begging. And he begs him. He says, become like me. Because I've, I've become like you. What, what's he saying? We need to remember, Paul was a strict follower of the law. Right? He, he was the best of the best. He knew what it meant to, to be zealous for it. He says he profited from it. So he... He understood, right, what the Judaizers were getting, trying to get them to do. He'd already been there. He had already done everything that they had wanted them to do. But when Christ revealed himself to Paul on the road to Damascus, what do we know? Right? Paul said, I considered it all loss. Right? He said so to the Philippians. Listen to what he said. But whatever gain I had... I counted it a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Jesus, my Lord. For this sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them all as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. He knew by experience, he says, I've been where you are. I've been like you. I've followed the law. Now be like me. Forsake the law and come to Jesus. Come, to, come back. He's saying, you know, don't turn away or you've turned back. But he's calling them brothers, right? So as, he's saying, brothers and sisters, as believers, turn back from that path that you're headed and get back on the right track. And then he gets really, really personal. In verse 13, he begins to look back on their time together. Significant time that they spent together. He starts by ex- describing this, the fact that him being there was a divine appointment. Right? He was passing through and it got shut down and he had to stay and he had to stay because of an ailment that he had. And it was through having to stay that the gospel was preached to them. And Paul knows that this is a divine action. This is, you know, God is behind this. And had it not been for him, had it not been for this ailment, you wouldn't have heard the gospel. And then in verse 14, he he describes how they took care of him. I mean, they didn't just... He came and he didn't just stay off by himself. They embraced him and brought him in. And what's significant about that is they brought him in despite what he looked like. There's quite a bit of agreement that, that Paul's thorn in the flesh was something as far as his vision is concerned. And the idea here is that 
he was, he was really not easy to look at. Some even said his, his eyes were, they were oozing and it was just one of those things you wouldn't want to touch or you wouldn't want to be near him. And yet, what did they do? They embraced him. They brought him in. They took care of him. They loved him. And he says he, they took care of him as if he were an angel or Christ himself and were taken back to what Jesus said in Matthew 25. Right? And then in verse 15 and 16, he just comes right out with it and says, what happened to you guys? What happened? You used to be blessed. There was a blessedness about you. There was a joy about you. There was a happiness about you. We, we had fun together. What's happened? Our relationship was such that you would have given me your eyes. Another indication of what he's dealing with, right? You would have given me your eyes if it would have helped or if it, it was possible. This is how much they loved, how much you loved me. And yet now you're treating me like an enemy because I've, I'm speaking the truth. And you can just, you can hear his sadness, you can hear the frustration, you can hear just, again, that, that perplexity. And then in verses 17 to 20, he attempts to wake them up one more time. He tries to wake him up and, and to share and to compare the, the motives of the Judaizers and his motives. He says, the Judaizers, all the Judaizers are out to do. They, wanna, they want you to make much of them. This is all about the Judaizers. They need to feel good about themselves. So they need a group that follows them, that believes them, that is looking to them for guidance. He said, all I wanted for you is for you to know Christ. He said, this isn't about me. This isn't about you joining our group. This is about you looking to Christ. I'm not looking for praise or adoration. And he was willing to go to whatever links possible to bring that about. He wanted to see them conformed into the image of Christ. And he wanted that so badly that the pain of that process for him was worth the life that came about in them. The pain of the process for him was worth the life produced in them. So brothers, we, we've got to move on, but... In these few verses, we, we learned several things about relationships uh, with one another and ministry to one another that I think are very important as we, believe it or not, move into our um, 11th month as a church. There's some very significant things here that I, and I, I simply want to list them as they came to my mind as I was reading through this. And we're going to close with this. But as the Lord continues to assemble our body and and as we continue to live among one another, I want us to think about these things. First, varying tones within our conversations will be necessary. And it'll be necessary for him as he's written this letter. They're going to be necessary for us. Secondly, ministry will take place in the midst of interruptions, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of change of plans. And God's going to be working providentially in the midst of all those things. We can believe that and trust in that. Thirdly, reciprocal care and mutual love will be avenues of blessing and producers of joy.
But telling the truth is vital. Telling the truth is vital. And rejection is not only possible, it's probable. Talking with Ernie before the service, right? You share the gospel, just be ready to be rejected. But even amongst ourselves and and sharing the truth, the hard truth that we may need to share with each other from time to time, be prepared and ready for rejection to that in the beginning. Know that seeking the well-being of one another and setting aside all selfish ambition is non-negotiable. We want, we want what's best for one another and what we want for one another is to see Jesus. Right? There, there are no other agendas. May we point each other to Christ. And finally, all of that is dependent upon how well we know one another. It's all dependent on how, we, how well we know one another. So I believe Paul did what he did, said what he said, felt what he felt... Because there was, because the the endurance of our activity and the intensity of our emotions are determined by the depth of our relationships. Our relationships matter, and we're all we're all responsible to both know and be known. And I want to share these words again from Mr. Packer. I think there's something we really ought to consider. The quality and extent of our knowledge of other people depends more on them than on us. Our knowing them is more directly the result of their allowing us to know them than our attempting to get to know them. When we meet, our part is to give them our attention and interest, to show them goodwill and to open up in a friendly way from our side. From that point, however, it is they, not we, who decide whether we're going to know them or not. And we need to flip that around and we need to consider that because we're responsible to know, but we're also responsible to be known. And when people put forth the effort to get to know you, they're only going to know you as much as you allow yourself to be known. And Paul, Paul took his time to get to know those he ministered to. He took that time. He purposely put himself in situations and in their midst to love them and to serve them. He was very intentional about getting to know them. But as we just read, he was also very purposeful and allowed others to get to know him when he was most vulnerable. That was not easy for him to do in that condition that he was in. But he, how did he do that? Why could he do that? He understood, and we're going to see this as we move into chapter 5, because he understood and was resting in God's immeasurable knowledge of him and God's immeasurable, inexhaustive love for him. And that's all he needed. Resting in the knowledge, in the knowledge that God knows you and loves you allows you to know and be known with others. Because in reality, we don't need anybody else if, if every need is met in Him. But that's where we're going in chapter 5. So may we go in knowledge, maybe grow in knowledge and in our understanding of God's immeasurable knowledge and love for us so that we might be intentional in knowing and being known among each other. May it be so. May God bless the preaching and hearing of His Word tonight. Let's let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for our.